<laughs> What's happening, weirdos? How great is this? Zach Braff. Zach. Zachy Braff. ZB. First uh, and foremost, I, I sure hope everybody is happy and healthy and uh, staying safe in all of this. Uh, my heart goes out to everybody that's going through a rough time. I hope uh, a, a little, uh, uh, some laughs will be helpful. This is a funny episode. It's a deep episode, just like Zach. He's funny and he's deep. And I love him. He was great. Let's get to it, as I always say, as quickly as possible. We do talk a lot about his movie, Wish I Was Here, which I highly recommend. Uh, I think I mentioned that Val and I are going through directors, and we went through our Zach Braff uh, moment there and rewatched it, uh, along with others. And uh, I highly recommend it. We talk about that. If you haven't seen it, check it out. And uh, in the meantime, I want to thank very, very much our sponsors, the Pete's Picks. As you guys know, I, I only do ads. I don't do traditional ads. I do ads for things that I actually love, things like cachava. Cachava is basically how I'm getting my nutrition these days, almost exclusively. It's so hard to get uh, raw food in your diet. Uh, I'm a little bit paranoid about raw food, to be honest. Um, uh, there's a sushi debate going on with my friends. I lean away. But the way that I'm getting my plants is cachava. I was eating it before all this. But I sure am swearing by it now. It is a plant-based superfood drink mix that is a great place to start for people that are curious about how to eat more plants and get plant-based nutrition and superfoods into their lives. It's 100% plant-based. It's got omega-3s from chia seed and flax seed. Not, as I always say, an anonymous barrel of, of mismatched fish that they squeeze, which is nasty. It's chia and flax. Boom. You would eat it, you would pick it, you would grow it. And they grind it up and put it in the bag. Eight superfruits, eight. 17 greens and veggies. That's really the key there. 17. When I was traveling back in our other life, it was really hard for me to eat healthy on the road. Now it's really hard for me to eat healthy at home. Boom. One serving, 17 greens and veggies. It's got digestive support. There's no gluten. There's no soy. There's nothing artificial in terms of sweeteners or preservatives. Uh, it's got 24 grams of plant-based protein. It's got 9 grams of fiber. But here's the kicker. It's actually delicious. You can make it with just water because there's powdered coconut milk in there. So that mixes with the water, mixes with the raw cacao. Tastes like a chocolate, sweet uh, because of the coconut nectar, low glycemic sweetener, it's not going to spike your blood sugar, but a sweet chocolate frosted milkshake, basically. But it gets you high on nutrition. Or you can make it with almond milk or oat milk, ooh, if you're nasty. Frozen strawberries, tastes like a chocolate strawberry smoothie. Or vanilla, if you're nasty. I got it to replace my uh, smoothie, which worked out wonderful. I got it to add to my smoothie, then I ended up replacing it. And it makes me feel incredible. So try it. And show your support of this podcast and give yourself some of those nutritions that you might be uh, missing. K-A-C-H-A-V-A dot com slash weird. That's kachava dot com slash weird. We'll give you automatically 20% off. The other very timely uh, Pete's pick is MeUndies. I'm wearing my MeUndies lounge pants, which are my favorite PJ pants. Many, many episodes of this podcast have been recorded while I'm wearing my lounge pants because that's one of the perks of being a podcaster. No video. You don't have to dress up. Certainly this episode, I'm currently wearing, uh, it's kind of like snowmen. Not really the right season, but still. Fun patterns. And I'm surprised at how much putting on my MeUndies. Not only do they feel great, but it puts me in a good mood because the patterns are sensational. They also have just regular grown-up stuff, solid blacks, whites, colors, and stuff. So you can redo your whole underwear wardrobe, which is what I did and what Val did. We just threw out all of our weird, holy, unfitting, bad-fitting 
not fun underwear and just did a complete me undies overhaul because I had heard about it on other podcasts and you're hearing about it on this podcast because I legit fell in love with them. They're the most comfortable underwear that I've ever owned. They're made from micro-modal fabric, which is even softer than cotton. You can even sign up for the membership, which means you get every month the softest, coziest undies magically appearing at your door. I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit how much I enjoy getting my little me undies shipment every month. New pairs, new patterns. Uh, you can try the lounge pants. You can try the onesies. If you are kicking it as much on your couch as I am, you're going to want to do it in, as I call it, a soft pant, not a hard pant. So get some me undies, show your support of this podcast, and treat your sweet, sweet ace. <laughs> treat your sweet ace. You get 15% off and free shipping and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go to MeUndies.com slash weird. That's MeUndies.com slash weird. And finally, this is a new Pete's pick for me. I've been trying it for the past two weeks now. Is another superfood that I am totally into, which is noni. Noni is one of the original superfruits. It's grown in Tahiti, sweet <laughs> Tahiti. Tahit Nonju? I'm trying to think of a fun... Tahit Nonju. It's known for its medical properties. Tahitian noni juice has been used by healers for thousands of years as an ancient health remedy. It's scientifically proven to boost immune activity, naturally enhancing energy and support overall wellness. My friend David told me about this. He gave me some. I was skeptical at first, but almost right away it started making me feel revitalized and it's tasty. It's like pomegranate juice, basically. And they have published and peer-reviewed studies of clinical double-blind trials with placebo that four ounces twice a day, which is what I'm doing, just little shots of it, 30% NK cell uh, improvement, like 30% more NK cells. That's natural killer cells. Uh, it is a powerful superfruit. It's got noni. It's got blueberry. Basically, these are one liter bottles of Tahitian noni juice sent directly to your door. They're also pairing it with a supplement called Cell Defense, which is clinically shown to help your body fight inflammation. Usually, these two together are $100, but if you want, you can try both for just 40 bucks and show your support of this podcast. Help free your body of harmful free radicals naturally with a superfruit. With the Noni, to heat Nonju, that's what I'm going to call it, supporting overall wellness and helping your immune system. Go to NoniNewAge.com slash Weird40. Not just weird, but Weird40 because it's 40 bucks for something that would normally be $100. It's, uh, it's a little ritual I, I found myself looking forward to every day, and it's nice to know you're doing something healthy for your body. Get into it. Show your support. Try some MeUndies. Try some to heat Nonju or uh, rock some cachava. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful for the Pete's Picks, uh, and I'm so grateful to you guys for listening, and I'm so grateful for Zach Braff uh, for sitting down and, and enjoying this chat. What a good one. What a good one. The gym would put me out of business. This and other great quotes <laughs> that you're about to enjoy. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Stay sane. Stay connected. Stay quiet. Stay lovely. That's what I'm going to say. Get into it. Enjoy Zach Braff. Did I, I already said get into it. Get into it. I'm forgetting how to talk to people. Get into it. There he is. Oh, my God. Let's spend the entire hour and 45 pitching a brother comedy just to make it feel like the old days. 
I miss I I, I missed um, doing normal things like that, like pitching dumb TV shows. That's what I'm saying. The Holmes Braff co-pilot piece. Do I need well, to have earphones to, for this fancy podcast? You sure don't. Um, oh, yeah, there you are. I was going to say we're not recording video. I'm it's just, fixing my hair for you, but I just want to make sure that the audio is good enough for you. I think it's fine. Okay. Uh, Conan did it this week, and he was just on an iPad, and nobody complained. So, But he's Conan. He's so darn charming that it wouldn't matter. Yeah. I feel like you're you're oozing okay. something. It might be charm. You're oozing something. <laughs> I'm going to ooze all over your podcast. Oh, God. <laughs> I love what I'm seeing in your background. There's a sauna. Let's riff. There's some gym. Let's riff, baby. Okay. I, I got two. You know, Kumail is my neighbor. Did you know Kumail at all? He got real buff. Yes, of course. So I'm always teasing Kumail that if he ever wants to borrow two 15-pound dumbbells, uh, that <laughs> he, he can ripped. come over. He got really ripped. My God. And he's bigger now. He got bigger? Because he's super into it. I, I heard him on uh, Dax's podcast, and uh, he was saying that he – I mean, they were just talking weightlifting and stuff, and which I'm – I'm in shape, but not anything like that. And I was just curious. And he sounds so into it. Like it's his favorite new passion. It's also, there's nothing for him to do. So that's what he's doing. So when I see him, the last time I saw him, I I reminded him that Christian Bale, when he booked Batman for Batman Begins, got so big, they told him to stop. (laughs) And the the joke was, it's Batman, not Fat Man. Because there's a type of big... That you start blurring the line. Yeah, well, like, well, they referenced husky. What I always reference on on the on Dax's uh, podcast, where there are three guys sitting around talking about weightlifting, they yeah. talked about Brad Pitt and Fight Club, which is what I always wanted to be. It's everybody. It's I, I hate to say cum gutters this quick in a podcast, but he has those cum gutters that I'm he has so cum sorry. Gutters and he, I literally, I literally, my I had this trainer who, who said, you know, put up some motivation on on the gym wall. Yeah. Oh, I, I printed a picture of Brad Pitt in Fight Club and put it on the mirror. Is it when he's getting up from the the like classic yeah, low, the a low lip shot? You, I think if you put in Brad Pitt Fight Club in, in Google, yeah. it's the CG. Uh, well, got the CG I, shot. Straight, straight men are going there to look at his body, and uh, everybody else is going there to probably masturbate to it. Of um, course, but I uh, I did something in between, and I just tried to uh, tried to get those cum gutters. <laughs> There's nothing worse. I, my ex-mother-in-law was a Fox News fundamentalist uh, Christian, and she hated swearing because if you said, she would say, if you say bullshit, she would picture a bullshitting, and that was unpleasant for her. Mm-hmm. That's how I feel about cum gutters, is I picture <laughs> just them like... filling up? I picture them filling up. It's really like one of the few things that can get an instant, like licking a nine-volt battery. An it's instant crunch. Yeah, it's not good for me. I don't well, hate I, it, but you know, we know. you we've never met in person, Pete. No, we've never, never met. Period. And the only time I've ever seen you in real life, IRL, is on McDougal. Ooh. Now I have a restaurant there called um, um, the the uh, I should know the name the mermaid the mermaid oyster bar. I, I you just made that up. You just made it up. That is that's that was like, a horrible improv. And I, with the camera turns and says a style, we see that there's just a mermaid and an oyster, and you're like, ah, mermaid. mermaid. It's like Kaiser Sose mermaid oyster bar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, on McDougal seventy nine McDougal. I will plug my restaurant on your on your podcast. Um, right Please down the street do. from the comedy um, cellar, 
um, is a restaurant uh, that I'm invested in. And I, and I, I invested because I love it. I, I go there all the time. And I'm also friends with one of your producers on Crashing, Igor. Yeah, Igor. And I was visiting, I was riding my bike around McDougal and I saw Igor and I saw you guys shooting Crashing and I stopped and, and, and shot the shit with some of the crew guys I think I knew. And I saw you and you were doing a scene and I didn't want to bother you, but I saw you from afar. And that's oh, the only I, time I've seen you IRL. I wish you had bothered me. I, I, I'm a huge fan. And I, I want to, let's get the, I always forget to say the nice thing. I do the podcast, your well, podcast. It was hard now. to segue off of cum gutters, but I really wanted to tell you that I love your work. <laughs> Well, I was thinking about it, uh, ZB, and I was like, you are one of those archetypal people. I'm 40. I just turned 41. Yeah. And I, I was uh, actually watching you talk with Sam Brown, and you were talking about how your character on Scrubs was a lot of men's first example of somebody who was uh, straight but sensitive. It seems yeah. so, like, it's so foregone. Most characters, it seems, nowadays are like, yeah, you'd be like you know, you'd hug a guy. Like, it's not, a, it's not as big of a deal. But I feel like you and I growing up didn't have a lot of people like that. So not only are you hilarious, talented, great actor, great writer, great producer, uh, great director, excuse me, I meant to say director, who cares how well you produce things. Right. Uh, but you were, you're like a staple of my subconscious. Not only do we kind of look alike, but I saw you on TV and I was like, oh, wait, that's a me. And I'm from motherfucking oh. Boston. I know you're from Jersey. Yeah which is like another type of Boston, like a strong identity and a strong sports identity. And I was like, oh, there's a, there's a place for guys like us. Well, thank you. I, I felt that growing up and watching TV, there was like the jock or there was the nerd. Yeah. And, um, the freak and, of the geek, if you will. Right. And I, <laughs> what I liked about Scrubs was that it was a part for a guy who, 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 who wore his heart on his sleeve and he was super sensitive and he, he didn't know anything about sports. And yeah. he was what would, what would be considered effeminate, I guess, in, 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 in some... In those of- times. In those times, for sure. Of course. It's and, like the, whoa, 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 whoa. That's what you get going in for a hug. Whoa, 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 whoa. Like, right. it's crazy. But I would, yeah, and, and bros, you know, you, there's still some guys you go to hug them and they need to put the arm in between. I don't know how, if you experienced that. Oh. You know so that I grew you, up in, or they hit you, of course. You I'm go hugging. in for a hug and then they do the hand grab. There's an arm in between. Oh, like a half pharaoh. I think it's called a hip hop hug. I don't know. But um, I, 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 I just go in and give a tight hug and I like groin to groin. I don't. Some men still like to um, pull their groin out a, a little bit so yeah. that there's a there's a uh, a buffer a buffer. Yeah, I'm doing a podcast, darling. You don't want gutters. Your girlfriend on gutters. is making a cameo in in your podcast. Well, it's audio only, so really we we barely got it. We barely got a sense. <laughs> nice, uh, uh, nice kitchen, by the way. Jesus, thank you. This Jesus. is my kitchen. I love, uh, are we looking at reclaimed wood? This yeah, is fun. All sort of reclaimed old barn wood. That's my I, style. It's great. There was a, if you watch Aaron Paul, there's this really, really pretentious, maybe you've uh, done it. The show is pretentious. I love it. It's, it's Vanity Fair or something go into people's homes. It's not yeah. just celebrities. It's probably home. Architectural Digest. That's probably right. That sounds yeah. about right. Yeah. And his house is, first of all, it's in like, it's in Minnesota or something. It's like really yeah, in the Idaho, maybe. And it's like nine barns that he like found. Yeah. I think he might be like you. My theory on you is that you, correct me if, you're, if I'm wrong, but I feel like you might be 
an enthusiast. I, I think you're like a, the things you're into, you're into them. Would you yeah, I'm them? very into um, uh, architecture and design. And um, I, I, get, I, I think of it, it's analogous in my mind to directing a film in, in that you get to work with all these amazingly talented craftspeople and, be, and, be, and have them execute something that's in your brain. Yeah, and but you either enjoy that or you don't. Some people don't. Keep going. And it's very stressful. It, of course, it's stressful because um, it's with a film. It's it's sometimes your money and and other people's money. With a house, it's all your money. And uh, of course, you want it to turn out great. And it's and just like making a movie, something goes wrong every day, and uh, <laughs> you have to figure out how to solve it. I think people like me. I, I I something else that I admire about you is that you were vocal about depression and anxiety. That was our lives were sort of similar as I was getting into the awareness of my own depression and anxiety. A lot of people put the paint of like, but I'm a happy guy. I'm a silly guy. And who cares what's in the basement? You sort of helped me get in touch with some of those things. And one of the problems I have with being super meticulous about my house or even about the show that I made is that the, the, the cost was too high. So you're able to quell anxiety that you might get from how difficult it is when I, I watched Wish I Was Here last night. Again, I, I had already seen Thank it. You. Yeah, I, I think it's fantastic. I think Thank you're you. an incredible filmmaker. That's my, that's my film that, um, that it's like the, the child I have that when anyone compliments it, I have a special place in my heart for it because I, I was so invested in that film and then it didn't do very well. And it feels like on the random times I, someone compliments that film, I, I, I get a special flutter in my heart. Oh, that's great. I'm glad you're still connected to it. Oh yeah, right. I'm I, I'm the guy who still this many years later sits up at night. I can't sleep thinking about how I could recut it and make it a better movie. Really? <laughs> yeah. I oh oh my god, the second director's cut. The first one was the director's cut, but here's another director's cut. Well, you know, when it doesn't go that when it doesn't when it isn't received as well as you hoped it would, you kind of go. Well, I kind of go. Um, oh man, maybe I fucked it up in the edit. I bet if I had left that scene in, or why the hell did I cut that one speech from so and so? I don't know. Uh, that's just my. That's my how my brain works. I understand that. I think uh, working with Judd that reminds me of him. He he. Yeah. When he's working on a movie, he's going to cut it every which way. Did you also try it a lot of different ways on set? Where you? I did. I did a lot of freedom. Film, I I the few I've made three features and and each time I feel like you find the movie in the edit room. You go out and you collect as much as you can in however many days you have. Yeah, and, and it's like a scavenger hunt. It's like, oh shit, we got that. Okay, good. Did we get that? Yeah, we got it. Okay, okay. And you collect all this shit and you're like, did we get it all? I don't know. I'll pick up that one shot that's on the floor. Yeah. And then you yeah. go in the editing room and then you like exhale and then you go, okay, what the fuck did we get? You know what it is? It's, it's like supermarket sweep where you get to run exactly. around and, and get as many things as you can. Exactly. And it's like, how much can shit can you get? And sometimes you don't get it. So, okay, that's not going to be in the cut. We didn't have time for that okay, uh, that actor was really bad performance. That's not going to be in the movie. Right. And, and, then, and then the movie starts to take its form in the edit room. You know? Yeah. The example in, in Wish I Was Here was that Joey King's performance was so amazing. And our, our banter and chemistry really uh, was, was, uh, was rising to the top. So it was kind of like, how do I, I need to tweak this movie a little bit so that that relationship which is so special is, yeah. is a little more uh, has a little more uh, attention yeah and so you start to reshape I mean, with garden state if someone had told me that i was making a love story I, I didn't really think i was making a love story i it wasn't until i got in the edit room that i started shaping it and seeing the performances that i went oh this is a movie about a guy who 
in, in, in working things out with his father can fall in love for the first time. Yeah. That's not what I thought I was making when I went in the edit room, you know? Yeah. I, speaking of fathers, I, I had nine things I was going to ask you, but this is the one that happened at the end. You have this great father character who doesn't uh, believe in you. And you have this great brother character who seems to be, I guess now we might say he's on the spectrum. He's like a genius. Yeah. Isn't it funny that we used to just call it like a nerd? He's a nerd. Uh, but he, Josh Gad- I would say, yeah, these days they would say he's on the spectrum. He's a, he's a, he's a, um, a agoraphobe and, and, uh, and, and they, you know, he sort of learns to come out of his shell and, 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 and communicate better. Right. Well, I'm fascinated with both of those characters, the dad. I'm curious about your experience with dads, biological and otherwise, just uh, men, authority figures in your life. And also your brother, because I, I have a brother who is, uh, I'd, I'd love to know about your brother and see if it's similar. I'm sort of the outgoing uh, one. And then my brother is also a very talented writer and, and very funny person, but he's definitely way more like the Josh Gad character. He, he doesn't <laughs> live in a trailer, yeah. uh, but like, I wondered if that was real life for you. Um, they're all variations of, of themes. I have two brothers who are both wonderful writers. Um, I wrote Wish I Was Here with my brother Adam. And I think we were wrestling, you know, everything I write, my, my father issues come in. It's so funny. I, 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 I'm writing something new right now. And I totally set out for it to be about this young woman and, and dealing with a tragedy. And then I start writing this little supporting story. And as it gets developed, I'm like, well, I'm just laughing at myself going, oh my God, I just wrote another fucking father son. Uh, yes. <laughs> but watch, like, you know, you know, I mean, so a lot of screenwriters say we're all just writing the same movie over and over again. Yeah. But um, I feel like, oh my God, I'm laughing at myself going, this little supporting B story just became another uh, father son. Of uh, course. Trying, trying to find uh, some way to communicate. But you're in such good company. The only movie that my baby has seen, she's almost two, is we watch Fantastic Mr. Fox. She's pretty obsessed with it. And so are we. It's, it's maybe, it's definitely one of my favorite movies. So Noah Baumbach and Wes Anderson wrote that. And it's, it's a dad character. And there's a scene where he says to his son, he goes, I'm so glad. He goes, like, when you were born, we had a little boy. I'm so glad it was you, Ash. He says that. And then he says, it's not your fault. It's mine. And I'm like, Noah Baumbach specifically, if you saw the Meyerowitz uh, uh, stories, I was going to say reports, the Meyerowitz stories, they're always kind of crafting those dad, like the monologue you want your dad to say. Yeah. And I think you've done a really good job with Thank that. You. They're doing a really good job with that. And is that what you're craving? Like, I'm, I, I'll say it. I'm craving my dad to go, like, I'm so glad you're my son. He'll say other things. But, like, man, I'm so, every morning I wake up, this is me writing for my dad, I'm just blown away that you're my son. Not because of what you did, because of who you are and all these different things. And then saying, and all this shit, any other shit that we had, it's not your fault. <laughs> I don't have that because my father passed away uh, two two years ago. Oh, well, I'm sorry. It's not your fault. And um, <laughs> and now tell me you're so glad it's me. I'm so glad it's you. <laughs> I'm so glad it's you that is saying that. Uh, um, <laughs> oh, uh, but no, we had a great relationship. I, I think what keeps coming up, we he, there was a period of my childhood where he was very tough on us and scary and had a temper. Mm. And to his credit, he did a ton of work on himself and – spun 180 degrees and for uh, most of my life uh i I, we've been good and he's been he was the most supportive person in my whole career but i think that i personally had some scars from the tough times 
And so I think that's what I'm, what I'm always working out is, is this, for this uh, redemption and forgiveness and can we start again? These things in families where there's just so much, there's so much tension and there's so much history and there's so much um, pain from the past. Um, can, can we start a new chapter? Is there a way for us to ever have a relationship um, that, is, that is new and doesn't have all these cobwebs of the past? Th- that's what I feel like I keep uh, harping on. And, and that's what I think I, you know, y- y- at the end of the day, you just got to write what comes out of you. I mean, obviously you want to shape it so it's a good story. But, you know, I once had um, uh, Bonnie Vare wrote a song for which I was here. Um, I don't know if you saw that, but it's, a, it's, a, it's I, I couldn't believe that he did it. Uh, Justin Vernon and he, is it the song that's the entire trailer? It's a great trailer, by the way. Oh, thank I, you. I have to think you did the trailer because there aren't trailers like that. It's well, I, I may have worked with my editor. My editor, Myron very, Kirstein, yeah, very song forward. I'm sorry. Actually, Myron Kirstein, just six degrees of Judd Apatow, who was one of the editors on Love, which I also loved. I couldn't believe that Love and Crashing are not still going. I think those two <laughs> shows. I mean, he was clearly, you guys were clearly speaking to me and uh, I, I'm so bummed they're not going on, but I, I, I digress. So um, no, I want to talk, let's not forget to talk about the similarities because watching Wish I Was Here I, and obviously Garden State influenced me. I'm like, this is a very thematically similar, like we deal with a lot of the same stuff. But yeah. please finish your thought. I think we have the same taste. I mean, that's why I think I respond to, to, to crashing and that's, Really, I'm in the spirit of uh, of, of Judd's other show. That's probably why I responded to, to to love. I just thought it was, you know, it's rare that I see feel like someone's writing for my exact taste. I don't know how you yeah. feel about that. I watch so yeah. many shows and I love them, and they could be it could be Narcos Mexico or it could be Kimmy Schmidt and everything in between, and I and I love it all. But it's rare that I go, oh my god, like this, like, and that's how I felt about your show. I was like, wow, this is so my cup of tea like this who's ever writing this really we have the same sense of humor well that's how i felt watching wish i was here again so after i made crashing so i saw it before i made crashing and then i'm watching it again and i'm like you know you get that feeling i'm certainly not ripping you off but i'm like this definitely informed oh you can just have people talking about like i'm thinking about the scene where you're on the beach drinking the beer with your wife and you have these conversations about like following your dream or like is God real or what yeah. do we do with suffering? And that I think is our cup of tea is I'm like, yeah. I, want, I want wounded, vulnerable uh, characters that seem alpha, but feel beta <laughs> that are dealing with like serious. Who think a lot. And who think who, a lot. Who think too for, much. Yeah. For better or for worse, think a lot and are probably obsessive compulsive and, um, yeah, yeah. but, but want love. In, in, in want romantic love, want familial love, want want more than anything love and acceptance. And um, uh, I mean, that's kind of what I keep writing over and over again. Yeah. That's not what we digressed from, but that was... Uh, we, you were talking about your editor making the trailer. Oh, yeah. So uh, he, he um, we cut uh, the trailer. No, before that, you asked me a question. Before the trailer, we were talking about... Song forward, Bonnie Oh, well, Bonnie Bear, Bonnie Bear. So uh, um, he... Uh, my music supervisor went up to Wisconsin where he works out of a, 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 on a farm. She showed him the movie and he stood up and he just went in his studio and wrote the song. Whoa. And when the song, Dude, isn't that exactly what you want? Like good movies should put a song in your heart. And if you're a musician, they literally put a song on the page. 
I mean, that's the best compliment. You should never stay up at night thinking about recutting your movie. How dare you? I know. Shame on you. I know. That's I just incredible. want more people to see it. And then when they don't, I'm like, I'm a failure. But anyway, yeah, I, I understand. the song came and the song was beautiful, but it wasn't exactly what I pictured for the moment. And, and, and I was in an uncomfortable position where I went, oh my God, <laughs> this genius who I love wrote this song. And the song is ridiculously beautiful, but it's not exactly the moment I pictured. What do I do? And so I had the balls to reach out to him going, oh, my God, man, thank you so much. This is just an outstanding piece of music. It doesn't exactly fit where I was going to put it. Is there is there any chance you'd consider doing X, Y, Z to it? Which I'm embarrassed to say I said, but I did say it. And he wrote back, Zach, I I just have to admit that's just that's what came out of me. Yeah. And and I've been thinking about that a lot lately as I write that I go. When when it comes out, you, you go you know, there's, there's work to be done on it and there's editing to be done on it. And you want your friends who are writers to give you thoughts and, and shape it and make it good. But at the end of the day, it's like in 2020 in a pandemic sitting in my, in my office, like that's what came out. Right. And I want to be respectful of, of that. When I wrote, wish I was here, it was like, it may not be the best uh, film I can make, but it was like, that's what came out of me in 2014. That's, that's the story I had to tell. Right. Isn't that our job? And I'd like to hear you speak on this, getting out of our way. It sounds like, I don't know if I call him Bon, Bon Iver, what he understands yeah. is that he's ice fishing with his subconscious. Right. So I heard you tell Sam Brown that you wrote- Sam the, Jones. I'm sorry. Sam Brown's an improviser. Sam you Jones. You can put that in editing. I, I never will. I'll dream. I'll dream at night how I could have edited this. You know, on our podcast, we just started, and uh, we occasionally, when we when we say something like a wrong name, we go, "Oh, we have to fix that. That's too embarrassing." That's pretty much the only thing we fix if we say someone's name wrong. Don't but you I see? Like you, you keep it more real. That's Sam, a, that's, a com- that's like a computer trying to learn to mimic handwriting, and it thinks if it does it perfectly, it'll look human. And I'm like, no, it'll look more human if you. Let the, the unfinished N look like in a lowercase r. That's what yeah, earlier you, is. Earlier you said Sam Brown, and I was like, I, I've done a lot of interviews. I don't remember the Sam Brown one. Ah! And, now, and now you said Sam Jones. Go, oh, yeah, Sam, Sam Jones. Jones. It's one of my favorite interviews that I did, too. Oh, he's very good. He's very, very good. good. Um, and he, he, he does a good deep dive. And good photos. Yeah, and then, and then to boot, you, you come away with great shots. I know. It's really, really cool. Um, so you told him that you wrote the... I think it's an iconic scene with Natalie Portman where you say, do something that's never been done, which is basically the spirit of the universe. That is the yearning and the spontaneity and the, and the zest, I'm going to use the word zest of the pulse of the universe. She's sort of representing that. And you, it seems got out of your way in a Bonnie Vare sort of way to let it flow out of you. Cause you told him that you only wrote it once. I wrote, you know, a lot of scenes, I'm sure you can relate, you write over and over again and they still suck and you don't know why. And then some scenes you sit down and you just write them in one sitting and you go, I don't want to touch that. I think that's pretty good. Yeah. And, and that scene in Garden State, which is, which is a lot of people's, one of, a lot of, one of the scenes people like a lot, um, is one of those scenes where I just sat down and it kind of flowed out of me. Right. I used to do that as a kid, that noise thing. I, I don't know where it came from, but I, I was obsessed with kind of being unique and being special and being doing things no one's ever done before because it just seemed like that was impossible. And how do I stand (laughs) out in an infinite universe? And as a little kid, I would go, well, you know what? No one's ever put their finger here, put their, lifted up their hair like this and made this noise. And I'm the only person (laughs) in history to ever do that. And it became just a little game I would play with myself. Yeah. um, 
and I put it in the movie and, and uh, it, it, it was a special moment. Isn't that fun? You have those moments, I think, as a writer where it's flowing and you have something, it's always something from your life. Like you said, your father, uh, psychology is coming onto the page or a game that you played as a child. I'm writing lots of different things, trying lots of different characters out, but it's so funny. It doesn't matter what the genre is or what the world is or what the situation is. Something comes out that's you and that's when you know you're on the right track. And when nothing's working, and if I find myself rewriting and retweaking and, and editing a lot, I find a lot of value. I actually just did this on a script I'm working on in scrapping it. I'm like, I'm just going to redo these 15 pages and remember, sort of like you putting your finger here and your hand here, remember that you can do anything. That's the whole fun of it. I know. Like you, you get trapped in going, I have to rewrite this scene instead of going, I could interior, interior baseball field, you know, I, I know right. they're outside exterior right. baseball field. You can do whatever the fuck you want. We get so caught right. and we lose that sense of play. I think also too, you're right. And I think also sometimes I get stuck and I go, well, I like this and I don't want to rewrite it and make it worse. So why don't I try and improve this? Yeah. Um, but could you write, I, I, I think I, I would have trouble writing something that isn't personal. I mean, I, I can, I rewrite that stuff all the time. I, I've, I've done punch up on scripts. I've, I've yeah. worked on things that, but I, in terms of starting from scratch and looking at a blank uh, cursor blinking, I don't think I, I, I have the discipline or the passion to write something that doesn't come, that doesn't fucking ache in my heart. Well then, I think you're going to know this already. What I will do? Like, could I'm, you write like a like a spy thriller? Like, I just don't think I could do it. I don't think I would. I, but yeah, I, I think you could because here's why: no matter what, you're like a computer, and if we load the spy thriller into the Zach Braff computer, it's going to come out Zach Braffy. I like, know, and that's what's so fun. The so sad, like, the sad indie music the spy. <laughs> why are the shins playing? It just happened that way. He's in a white tuxedo. Um, I am working on a science fiction thing right now, which I'm really excited about. I believe you like, I love when the dad says um, scientific fiction. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> scientific fiction. It made me laugh. Um, but I was like, oh, can I, I started writing what I thought a spectrum nerd programmer would be like. And then instead, and this was a big breakthrough for me, I, and this pandemic, uh, obviously my heart goes out to all the suffering, one of the things it's doing in my experience is helping me get in touch with the part of me that is an Asperger coding nerd. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm in the back, I'm in this office with the blinds drawn, with uh, noise-canceling headphones on playing electronic music so I can get in the zone. And then I'm like, that's what a coder does. This is me. Like you have, <laughs> that, you have that breakthrough and you're like, oh, but I got to find a guy who doesn't really know what friendships are or relationships. I'm like, Pete, you're a terrible friend. Like you're like, you're, you're constantly struggling, like how to understand human relationships. Like just find that part of you, the whole mosaic of, of Peter, the whole mosaic of Zach. It's not indie music or, or just poetry and, and, and loving human conversation and connection. There's so much else going on. We just lean into different parts. Don't you feel? Of course. But also it takes a certain something to get your ass in the chair every day for to, sure to do it. And I think, I imagine if someone had done the structure for me and said, okay, you know, I'm really good when people, when someone goes, okay, this is the scene. Here's what needs to happen. I need you to get these characters from point A to point B. I need, and this, We're the has, same. And this has to come up. I could write that fucking all day long. We're the same. But in terms of going like, okay, now there's the chase on the roof. 
and they're gonna probably have to meet in the in 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 the quad. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I just like I, I don't think like that. No, I heard you say that you like writing dialogue, and I'm like, I love writing dialogue to to the point where it's like, I'll do a my first draft of of, of this particular script I'm working on is like so overwritten. It's just like dialogue, oh dialogue, 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 and then I eventually have to go in with like you know the hedge trimmers and and yeah. scale. You All fill back. up, fill up the cum gutters, then get that bedside rag. That's what. Oh, <laughs> oh my god. god! That is one disgusting callback. <laughs> <laughs> but we are very, very similar. When I was watching your movie last night again, now as a writer, as somebody who's made more stuff, who knows myself more as a writer, I was like, "This, I know exactly what's happening." I'm with you in your office talking to yourself because mm-hmm. I see the you see the music. And, yeah. and help me appreciate it. And I, again, now we're just butter and bread. No, I like that. I, I'm, I'm. It's really cool to know that you like my stuff because I, I, uh, I'm a fan of yours too. Yeah. Uh, Jessica Kirsten is my stepsister, and she was hilarious on your show. Do you know did, that? Did you hear? Yes, I did. Did you hear her on this podcast? No, I haven't. But oh, I, but I, I, she cracks me up. Yeah, yeah, she's really, really wonderful. That and scene she, where you're doing the charity at the club around the corner and she has to run with you, I mean, that was so uh, funny. <laughs> I, and, you know, I wasn't a director, but you know when you're on a TV show that the, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one that said this. It's like the writers are sort of the directors of TV. Mm-hmm. Or well, in the, a big showrunner, the showrunner is sort of, you know, it's, it's, they say it's a writer's medium as opposed That's to right. the director's medium. That's right. So in the in that, well, Gillian, or I, I'm pretty sure it was Gillian directed that, but we were all on the same page. We wanted that one tracking shot showing just how literally close those two clubs are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was Judd's idea. He was like, they should be running back and forth. And again, that's just like a great metaphorical way of showing just how stressful it is to be a comedian. Whether or not that thing actually happens to you, it sure does feel like running around. This is why I, I want... I dream I about being late to the airport. That's what life feels like. <laughs> I've watched her career, dude, from... I, I mean, I was at her first shows where she was like, you know, where you had to... Where you're pretty much... You had to bring people, right? And they had to buy a two-drink minimum and pay a cover. Yeah, bringers. Yeah, that's what it's called. I knew there's a the big jargon for that. Bringers yeah. and barkers. That's, yeah, I... Uh, my I, character I, barks. Yeah. I went to many a bringer and... Uh, <laughs> And man, and some people were, you could see like, okay, they're going to have talent one day. And other people you're like, oh, this is just fucking horrible. Yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, and then like a couple months ago, she had a billboard in Times Square for her comedy special. So I, wow. I'm just so proud of her. She, she, I've watched her whole career blossom. Oh, she's and, and I know how hard that, that world is. She's a true talent. The, the thing that's difficult about that Barker, where you see people that have it and some people that don't. And I think this is when show business is healthy. Uh, it, you can have people that spot the people that don't think they have it, but they do. I think that's really the the tough area is there are people at shows like that. And I sometimes when we were doing crashing would go to shows like that. I'm like, the tragedy here is that guy that bomb doesn't know that he's great. Oh, really? <laughs> you know what I mean? Are you able to go? Are you able to, this is a, a good question for you. I've already decided before I've said it. Are you <laughs> able to, because you're an accomplished standup, are you able to pull people aside that are starting and go, Hey, I mean, in the in, in your world of stand-up, is there a way to pull someone aside and go, hey, I know you're young and you just bombed, but here's X, Y, and Z thoughts? Right. I certainly, uh, maybe you and I are the same. I'm going to go ahead like you with your question and assume that we are the same in this way, that I've always 
assumed and looked forward to being a, a mentor. Mm. I do find those opportunities. That's why I do this podcast. I just get all my advice out here. And if people want to hear it, they can take it. Or, or, but when you give it to somebody, I'm so afraid of running into somebody that doesn't want it. Like I did, I hosted New Faces in Montreal. That's the showcase for new comedians. And I just, in my mind, I was like, this is going to be great. It's going to be like young people and I'll be able to answer any questions. I, I just remembered all the questions that I had when I did New Faces. And it was, that was not the experience. I remember I said to Val, my wife, I was like, these, these young people, they, they just believe in themselves so much more than, than I ever did. They don't seem insecure like I was. I really un- downplayed. But then I did give a couple like, that was really great. You were, you were incredible. You were one of my favorites. And they played it like it didn't matter. And then later I would find out from a friend of theirs that it did matter. That's not the point. It's not about stroking my ego. I was really trying to do something as purely altruistic as you can, which everybody knows isn't possible, but as purely altruistic as I could yeah. and, and just pay it forward because that is very interesting to me. And now to spin it back to you, you telling me that you like crashing means so much. Are you doing that to young actors? Are you doing that to young writers? You seem like that kind of fellow. I don't really have a lot of, con- I mean, when I'm not working uh, on a set or on a job, I, I don't really have contact with strangers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, especially in LA. When I'm in New York, of course, you're walking down the street. And, but I mean, again, it's not, you know, when it, when it, when it, when it so I, I went to Northwestern and so I, I have done in the past, gone back and done some, some workshops there for students. Um, I think also in when I'm casting something, I, I try because when I'm yeah. a director and I'm an actor, so I know what it's like, I try and be like, pull someone aside and go, hey, I, you know, that was awesome. I don't know if you're going to get it because it's not just up to me, but you should know that that was really good. I try and do that because casting yeah. is so uh, humbling and hard. And I, I because I'm sort of speak both languages of both sides of the table, I try and yeah, I try and give a little pep talk. I would do. I remember the first season of Crashing. I was so generous, or trying to be so generous with every actor. I was like, "Look, I know what it's like," and I talk to them and I talk about what we're looking for and what we need, and try and give them insider tips. And then you do that like two hundred times, and then you start becoming more and more like the people that you and I have both auditioned for that are just sitting there and they're just like, "Hi, like, I welcome." But I don't have the energy. I can't. It's it's just it's a waiter. Can you just say? I we're, we're out of this. I, I, I sometimes direct commercials, and when I do, you'll you'll see you'll see just so many fucking people coming in, and in the in the morning, you're like, "Hey, how you doing?" Okay. <laughs> so um, it's it's ranch dressing, and it's the best ranch dressing you've ever had. And then by four, on your fifth cup of coffee, you're like, "Can you just fucking say it? It's, yes. It tastes good." But you know why that's valuable? I think to people listening is such a great lesson for show business for me is that it's not personal. Like you can oh, go no, in the most important thing to learn. And I and I say to people, um, the best advice if you're an, if you're an actor who happens to be listening to this, the best advice I can give you is the people uh, in that room are, are rooting for you. I always say this: they want you to be great. Yeah. I just would go in the room as when I was auditioning um, for things and and act like. Oh God, I, these people hate me. I gotta, I gotta win them over. When, when in actuality, when I'm on the other side of the table, I think, Oh my God, I want, I so want this person yeah. to be great because yeah. then we're done. I'm also very stressed that we're not going to find the person now because we've reached this point of, of the casting process. We still don't, we still haven't found them. And yeah, I'm, when you walk in the room, I am, I am rooting for you to be awesome. Yes. That's I right. Think that's a good mindset to have for an actor. I think that's great. Speaking of how you don't really talk to too many people apart from what you did at Northwestern, which is really cool. 
what is like, by the way, but before you continue that question, I would like to, and I would, and I'm, and no, I'm, no, no, you don't like people. Uh, <laughs> you're, you, you were the one that said come gutters the first time. And I would like, I would like the opportunity to have more mentoring uh, opportunities. Uh, See, this uh, is, this is where standups have you beat. You know what I mean? Like we're with each other. It's like, it's like right. all we do is theater. You know what I'm right. saying? Like it's so much more. I feel like you guys can get a little bit, and I say you guys, obviously I act as well. It can be hard for, uh, I think, some of the actors that I've talked to to find access to people. No, we're not, I don't, you know, again, if I'm not working, I'm, I'm not having, I'm not having access to strangers to support, but I can go on your podcast and give that's them, what, little, I can give them the little tidbits. That's what I'm saying. Let's give them some biddies. <laughs> Let's give them some biddies. Uh, I love to phrase the question this way. Um, what is the greatest lesson You've, we've talked about writing. Let's start with writing. The greatest lesson you've learned about writing. Some advice someone gave you, a mantra that you repeat in your head. And by the way, Zach, it doesn't have to be brilliant or mind-blowing. Sometimes the simplest things are, are Well, great. one thing I always think of is, I think it was Lawrence Kasdan who said, being a writer is signing up to have homework for the rest of your life. <laughs> That's great. That remind, I forget who said it, writing is easy. You just have to sit at the keyboard and bleed. I was like, I don't know who said that, but that is, because you know, like bleeding can kind of feel like a release, but it's still bleeding. Like you're still giving something difficult. It's so hard. Um, I guess um, I, one thing I'm really learning about myself, I'm 45 years old, I'm still learning about how how to get myself to write, is that is that I, uh, this isn't going to be a, 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 a simple quote, but just an ideology. And that is that just what I'm intimidated by is the I'm amassing the clay. I mean, to use a trite analogy that you, what we're doing as writers for, when you're writing a screenplay is you're amassing all this clay just to get a draft. And then you can go in and shape all that clay and go, Oh, this makes no sense. Or this is too long. Or, Oh, why did I do that? Yeah. But, me, the most intimidating thing is staring at that blank page with the blinking cursor and and just doing that first blah, throwing it all up uh, out there, amassing a giant thing of clay, and then and that can be messy and bad and long and 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 all, all, all sorts of negative things. But then once I have that, I'm way less intimidated by going back and shaping. I I, I look forward to going back and, and rewriting shaping. is not scary. Yeah, it's not. I'm as not scary. intimidated by rewriting. I'm not intimidated by looking at a 150 page thing and going okay this is a mess but let's get to work it's the it's the assembling of that first beginning middle and end that i find uh daunting and that keeps me from writing and i and i i want to continue to to tell my i kind of figured that out with this draft because i was procrastinating and wasn't doing it and finding anything else to do and then i finally went then i finally pushed myself got the 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 first messy draft and then I'm, I'm really enjoying the shaping you know yeah no i totally understand the the sci-fi thing i'm working on is an adaptation and i told the producers that uh brought it to me i was like my hardest thing on crashing what what we would do was we'd pitch the story to judd and then judd did what you should do which is dream about it ruminate with it sit with it and and come back and play and tell us a new thing but I was like, if somebody can just tell me what's happening, I mean, doesn't this sound like something you would say? If I just know what's happening, I can yeah. I can write it. Like it's that's that's sort of the fun and easy part. Yeah. Someone someone a writing um, a teacher said to me once, uh, or recently said to me, um, we were talking, and I was like, I don't know. She goes, just without stopping, tell me tell me the story of the movie. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> she she go, I, what I haven't really figured. She goes, just go, just go, just start talking. 
<laughs> I start talking and, and I'm telling her the story of the film. And, and there were a couple of places where I'm like, and I'm not exactly sure what happens there, but anyway, da, 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 da. and then she was just kind of quietly taking notes. And then when I was done and after seven minutes, she just turned around and hold up the paper and she goes, there, there's your outline. Wow. And it was like, it was like a messy, but, but perfectly usable outline of a story. And that's, I just need to go write those scenes. Yeah. I love that. That I, I feel like I can, I've had that talent for other people where I'll be driving with them and they're, and I'm just like, just tell me about your life. And you're like, well, that's the opening scene. And this is the, like, it's such a, it's like, that is a learned skill. I feel like you have to make a lot of stuff to be able to figure out like, well, that's it. It's there. You just, you know, I would lose that and do this. And that's your outline. But, but that, me, and you got to tell me know. about it. Like it's a, tell me about it. Like we're sitting on a campfire and it's your turn to tell a really awesome story and you're telling it like it's from your life like yeah. all right you guys i have to tell you the craziest fucking story you don't have to say it necessarily happened to you because it just happened to my friend you're not going to believe this fucking story yeah and you're leaning in and you're holding everyone's attention tell the story of the script like that wow you know, in, in, in six minutes let's say seven maybe ten minutes whatever it takes but not too much longer than that and then and then whatever you did to hold everyone's attention and went, and then wait, 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 you're not going to believe this. Then turns out she's fucking pregnant or whatever it is. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And then that's, that's, that's like, that's like the end of the second act. You know what I mean? Like you're, right. you, you're, you can find all the beats of your film in, 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 in that. Right. Bringing it back to the basics. Yeah. I love that. Just I was great. Just telling a great fucking story. I was just zoom pitching a show and I, I really wish we had had this conversation before that. Cause it's never occurred to me to be like, I always sort of downplay it and soft sell and just be like, let's just talk. This is kind of what it's about. And I think that's a good approach, but like the fire camp approach for creating it or selling it, I think is really good. I was zoom pitching because I, I'm sure not everyone who listens to this knows what that is, but in Hollywood, which is obviously shut down, people are already going out to the studios and pitching ideas over zoom. And I haven't, I haven't done, I'm scheduled to do that, but I haven't done it yet. How is it? Well, when it was, they were on the books and then I told uh, my agents, I was like, I don't want to do it because it sounds like I, a big belief in my life is there's, if there's a one line reason why something bad happened, don't do it. For example, it's easy example. Uh, you have lung cancer. He smoked. That's a one line reason. So, so avoid those one line reasons. Yeah. They passed on my show. We pitched it during the epidemic. <laughs> like, like you want to, you want to avoid those one line. But that having been said, I've heard the the gossip that 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 people are, are going to know about buying stuff. Yeah, no, that's that's why. So the first round, I was like, let's put it on hold. Then the second round, uh, one of the producers was like, I think we should do it. And I actually found it. I, it's hard to separate just the fun of talking to four people because it, it was just nice to sort of socialize. Right. But I thought it, I thought it was okay. On a very practical level, you can have your notes on the screen, so you don't have to like, you know what I mean. Like I, I here's the only note I have on this post-it right here: JD as a guy who wasn't gay but was sensitive and not into sports. That's all I have. That's the only note for the whole podcast. But I also wrote down every shot and dream. We can get to that. Don't worry. These are, we got right. good stuff yeah, coming you're, up. You're prepared. You know, I've been trying to prepare when I do mine. I, I, I've been making I'm not prepared. I wrote these while we were talking. You don't, oh. don't you dare think I prepared. Oh, I thought you might have prepared. Well, you did watch Wish I Was Here in my Sam Jones interviews. That's, but okay, dude. Okay. I'm going to tell you something fucking weird. 
I watched the movie Gigli. Val and I got uh, stoned and we wanted to watch a bad movie. And that's sort of one of the most famous bad movies of all. And Martin Brest. I mean, I don't know how Martin Brest had such a, it, the, the film was bad enough that he said like, fuck it. I'm not going to make movies anymore. Really? Well, I know he hasn't made a film since and he's still alive and he's fucking an amazing wow. filmmaker. That's incredible. Well, I mean, you see a lot. I mean, I love Affleck. Uh, you got J-Lo. You got Christopher Walken. This is such a, a long, boring point. I'm going to make it real fast. Christopher Walken goes in to, uh, uh, I guess, interrogate, but a casual interrogation of two suspects that he thinks maybe did a crime. And it's so interesting because he's not like looking at them directly. And he's just kind of, it looks like he's wasting time and being stupid. So even in Geely, I was like, that's genius. Not just Christopher Walken, the way he played this guy, but that investigators really do that. When they're visiting... Uh, somebody they think might have done a crime. They don't want to get too stuck in their rational mind. Did he do it? Didn't he do it? Is he acting? They just want to let that person into their subconscious so they know that their subconscious in the weeks and months following where they're working on the case, that person will be floating around back there like a dream. And they'll go like, wait, because they know a good investigator or a good creator knows that everything important is happening behind the scenes so just let that person in get whatever you can how they eat a sandwich what what kind of shirt were they wearing it doesn't matter what they're saying it matters how they're saying it how do they come across to you and then later you can get into the nitty-gritty and that felt very profound to me i was like that's how a good show should be made that's how a good idea should be made it's like hunting you don't want to make eye contact with a deer you you just want it in your periphery and hear a twig breaking keep it subtle Keep it, keep it dreamlike, keep it ethereal. So anyway, I, I, what, what brought that up? I forget because we went on a thing. Um, I'm I, doing that thing where I'm asking the guest to help me with I my don't know. train of thought. Why don't you, why don't you reference your extensive notes? Um, I think. Oh, what a salamander. I've never been salamandered by J.D. Salamander. Oh, my God. Here's the next thing I have for you. By the way, this, this, this is a, written on the back of a Carl Sagan quote, and it applies to what you were talking about. I read, okay. read it on the show before. He says, every one of us in a cosmic perspective is precious. If a person disagrees with you, let him live. In 100 billion galaxies, you will not find another. That's exactly what you were saying when you were like, I want to pull my hair and touch this. I want to be unique. Yeah. Everybody is unique, even if they're not playing that game. Yeah. Um, let's talk about what, one of the things that I took a note on, which was uh, giving up on a dream what is a, what's the most important lesson you've learned about pursuing a dream? Just not giving up. My father used to say this, um, this little, I don't know what is an allegory that I'm, I'm, I don't know where he heard it, but the idea was a guy who says, I want to, I want to get over that fence. I don't see how I'm going to get over that fence. That fence is way too high, but I got to get over that fence. And, and he, so he takes his hat off and he throws it over the fence. We've said this on the podcast before. I love this. Really? Yeah. Throw your hat over the fence. And then he's like, now I got to get over the fence. My fucking hat is over there. I love it. And my father, my father had lots of stories, like little, little, little allegories, if you will, like that. And I, and I, um, so I just think about not, not getting stopped. Not, um, I mean, I've had, you know, in, in my career, I've been doing this for a long, I mean, my first part was when I was 14 years old. Um, and I've been doing it on and off since then i mean pretty on since my early 20s and i i uh, you know you have ups and downs you have things that work things that don't but one thing i 
I've learned is that if you just don't give up you, on, on certain things, you can't possibly fail. Just, I mean, everybody passed on Garden State. Um, really? Everybody passed on Garden State. Name names. Um, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, 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 all. I don't have to name names. Just all. <laughs> then what happened? I'm sorry. I'm sure you've told the story before, but if everybody passed, why do, uh, why do I have it on DVD? <laughs> um, what happened in a nutshell was, um, uh, it was, it was, it was set up at Jersey films. Um, but we didn't have financing and, um, and no one, no one would, no one would pay for it. Um, at the time the budget was about $6 million and, um, we just couldn't find a financier. And there was one little mini mini studio, I think that was was going to do it, but they wanted to split it with a with an with an equity partner. Some individual would come in with with money. And I found this guy named Gary Gilbert. His he and his brother Dan Gilbert uh, owned Quicken Loans, and they they own the uh, Cleveland Cavaliers now. Um, and they his Gary wanted to get into film producing, and so I was his sort of first test case. He came to this meeting with this smaller studio, and they presented the business model. We go in the parking lot and he's like, I don't know anything about Hollywood, but that's the stupidest business model I've ever heard of in my life. Like uh, it just makes no sense uh, from a business point of view. He goes, is there any way you can make this movie for half of that? Because if you can, I'll just pay for the whole thing myself. <laughs> and we were like, um, give us a second. <laughs> but we, 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 we rethought we rethought everything and um, shot the you know made a twenty five day schedule and for, dropped rental cars and dropped cranes and dropped so many things and got the budget down to two point seven five million dollars and he paid for the whole thing himself. Whoa! Now I feel like the soundtrack alone would be two point seven five million dollars. Well, and then he sold it at Sundance for for over five million dollars, I think, and then and then it's gone on to 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 be the, the little uh, little engine that could and keeps going and going and going but but it's but it's 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 the ultimate story of i've had many stories in my life like that but that's the ultimate version of my career whereas where it was like it was just i'm not gonna give up my hat's over the fence and i'm just gonna keep going I'm gonna, if it's not this guy it'll be somebody else i'm gonna make this movie but let, talk a little bit about why, because something that I say a million, and I want to hear what you think about it, is that too many people, I think, want to be actors because they want to be rich, famous, or, or have a lot of sex, or, or, or have a nice uh, reclaimed wood kitchen. But what, what is it? What, that fence and your hat, it can't be. I can't think someone who's cashed in, forgive me, I'm just saying like you are okay, and you are writing a movie. Like what is going on? What do you love to do? Why is this your dream? Because I think if you speak to that, people can get some clarity. Is this really my dream or is it just something that I think I'm supposed to want to do to be important? The greatest joy that I ever have um, in, 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 uh, outside of, uh, you know, love and friendship and family is, is, is having someone moved by something I made. And that could be tears, that could be laughter, it, but I don't, I, I, I can't find something I like more than that. I can't imagine something. I used to go, my dad used to do community theater and I would go see him in the local plays and he was good. So he always had the lead part. And I would just sit, I was eight years old and I would sit and watch my dad and like, hello, Dolly. And, uh, and, mm. and I just thought, and this was community theater in Livingston, New Jersey. And I remember thinking like, this is, this is a job. 
Like you can, <laughs> like you can do, do this. <laughs> like you, don't do, you don't have to do all the other shit that my parents don't like doing. Like you can choose to have this be your job. But you weren't reading Us Weekly and looking at red carpet photos. You were Not going, look at a man in Hello Dolly in Jersey. And no, what I was looking at was the joy that yeah. even though it was a fucking zero budget community theater production, I was looking at the joy it was bringing to the people in that audience and how my dad would get a big laugh. And I was just like, wait a minute, this doesn't, this isn't just a hobby. Like this can be yeah. a career. And I knew at eight that that's what I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing. Yeah. And you know, when I was at garden, when I was at Sundance for garden state and I, and I finally introduced the movie and if I got in and we were at the Eccles theater, which is the big theater in, in, in park city. And uh, I just stood in the back and the movie started and I just started like sobbing. I was like, this is all I ever wanted to have yeah. happen and it's happening. Yeah, that's a, Bobby Moynihan told me when he heard uh, his name announced during the credits of SNL, he just started bawling. Yeah. And I was like, that's it. It's not, if you told me some story about a paycheck you got or something, like that would just make my penis go inside my body. I hate <laughs> that stuff. I, and, and that reminds me of your character in which I was here because his wife talks about the happiest she saw you was doing a very <laughs> poorly attended Shakespeare production. That sounds like you were talking about your dad. Uh, my dad and also, you know, I never, Shakespeare was nonsense to me until I got to Northwestern and I had a really great teacher uh, who kind of like, it was like learning a language. And once I understood the language and then I would go watch great productions, I, it was like Eureka. It's like, you know, you know, those things that when we were growing up and if you looked at the poster in the right way, it would come out 3D. Yeah. Magic you know? eye. Yeah. So it was like that with Shakespeare for me in, in that um, it, I, I got it. I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm getting it. I'm getting it. I see it. And, and, um, and I had some, some real pivotal moments in, in college where, where that were transformative. And then at, at fresh out of Northwestern, I got some roles in Shakespeare at the public theater in, in, in New York. And then eventually the Delacorte in Central Park. And I did Romeo and Juliet. And, and, and so that was really, um, a really strong transformational thing for me in my life. And I think that's why I put it in which I was here because he was trying to say, my character was trying to say to Kate Hudson's character, like, or, or I guess she was saying to me, I haven't seen you with that much joy where, where especially back in college when, and, and when you're first starting out where everything's just so carefree, you're not thinking about having to pay the rent. You're not thinking about, um, or I should say I was blessed to not, I have to because I had, I had parents who could help me, but I, I I was I was allowed to just focus on the art of it all. And then once you graduate and you get out there, then you have to start thinking about uh, how you're going to pay for everything. But but I, I think firing up a time machine. <laughs> Do you hear that? Is someone firing up a time machine? I wish. I think that's a, one of those people who decided that their loud motorcycle is cool. Ah, okay. I'm so sorry. I, I'm a motorcycle rider, but I don't do the no muffler bullshit. Okay. All right. Nice. I didn't know guys that looked like us could ride motorcycles. Oh yeah, you can. You're you're allowed. <laughs> like no one stops you. Oh, but you're like seven five though. I don't know if yeah. they make a motorcycle for you. No, you don't want that. It's it's like a greyhound. I just lay down in it. That's my motorcycle. Um, you <laughs> you seem like a guy that once you got it, like you're like I got it with Shakespeare. You want to give it to other people because if I can pay you another compliment, Garden State. Uh, there was something in there that was like, hey, young people, what if we liked good movies? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Well, I wasn't trying to say that. I honestly, to be, this isn't false modesty. I did not think that it would have the response it had. I thought, I thought, oh, this will hopefully be my first film and people will 
I'll be able to be a filmmaker because this is my foot in the door. This is my first right. movie. I had no idea what my second was. I, I look at these guys like Damien Chazelle who are so, who so wisely have like three movies ready to go. But when I made Garden State, I was like, all right, I have no idea if this is going to work, but let's try. And then when it became a big hit, I, everyone was like, what else you got? I was like, nothing. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, one, uh, one moment. Uh, I'll be right back. Do you have a, a water closet? Write another story about another sad Jew. But not even, I don't even mean it in necessarily a pretentious way, but when I was watching Wish I Was Here, and it's the same with Garden State, you're like an every shot director, meaning it's well lit. Like I was envying your DP, but I know that has a lot to do with you and the DP. Yeah, I'm very into photography is a hobby of mine so i i think of it like i get so much joy in in composition and in in storyboarding well, pete my character pete had a care uh, scene at a synagogue in crashing i remember and he sits down with the rabbi i was really annoyed you didn't uh, ask me to be one of those jews that uh, <laughs> <laughs> in that whole sequence we could have put you in all even that comedian, i forgot his name who's who who is a jewish comedian who was in that episode modi Modi and Elon Gold. Elon Gold. Sorry, I've known Elon for a long time. I haven't seen him in years, but he was very funny. But I, I was jealous. This will edit out. We're going to edit that out. I, I cannot have Elon Gold texting me because he was so happy. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Oh. He's going to be oh. thrilled. That's very nice. Oh, I, ha- I know Elon from years ago, but I haven't seen him. And my point is, I had that classic actor thing where I went, A, good for Elon. He's hilarious in this. B, what the fuck, Pete? I want to be one of the Jews that you're... <laughs> That is so funny. I never in a million years thought, well, you would have had to play yourself, unfortunately, in a show like ours. It would have I know. Been, it would I, have been, I could have. I could have. I could have. I'm not a stand-up, though. I wouldn't have had to play a, 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 you know what happens is funny. I walk down McDougal and all the Barker guys are trying to get me to a comedy show, comedy show, comedy show. I'm like, guys, I, I'm already, I'm, 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 I'm going to come to the comedy cellar anyway, because I love it, but um, I'm the wrong, yes. you're not going to recruit me. That's hilarious. I hope people are nicer to Barker's because of our show. I, I'm not saying you were rude. I'm saying like, I think it made, I hope it made them into people. Because I never understood fully in, until I saw your show because Jessica, my, my stepsister, who's my into the world, um, I don't think ever did that. Um, so I never fully understood that they were comedians, comedians. trying to get time. Yeah, they don't want you to know they're comedians either. Like, I wouldn't want to be like, I'm on the show. Like, you're trying, like, I, you'd wear a hat and then you take the hat off. Like, you don't want anyone to go, that's the guy from the corner. Like, yeah. you, you want to you wanna play into that mystique. Um, I love the guy who played your manager. He was really funny. Zach Cherry, he's incredible. I had never seen him before your show. And also, that really interesting woman who played your girlfriend, I'd never seen her before. And I thought she was fabulous. Yeah, Kat. Cat is incredible. I'm sorry, Madeline Wise is her real name. She's incredible. She's a theater actor. This was her first foray into TV, and she is a real fine. Well, Todd I, Fe- she did, I, I said to Igor, my friend who's your producer, um, I said, How did you guys find her? Because, you, you know, um, when someone's uh, super young, you, you can go, Okay, I haven't seen them before, but not, not to say that she's old in any way, but when someone's, you know, gets to be late 20s, 30s, you go, you're like Eureka. Where did you find her? We haven't, why haven't we seen her before? You know? But that goes back to like you are watching Hello Dolly and you go, I want to do this. Madeline wants to act like she's an actor. And I loved acting with her. I acted with so many comedians and we're all kind of figuring it out. And then you're acting with an actor and you're like, holy shit, this is incredible. She, she right. be anything. She, well, I she hope she gets crying. a lot of work um, off of your show because I thought she was great. Yeah. 
Todd Phillips was directing uh, Joker at the time, and and he came by and was in Video Village and watched her and was like, "That's a star!" So we're very excited. Oh, well, there Halloween. you go. She's she's um she's got Todd Phillips's. Yeah. Speaking of Todd Phillips, you complimented the cinematography of those two films. They're both shot by Lawrence Schur, who shot Joker and got an Oscar nomination. Oh wow, that's so, interesting. There you go. I but, discovered Larry. But what I mean, so going back to that compliment about Garden State, in which I was here, is you're like. The I know that it takes somebody's will and somebody who's passionate reclaimed wood in their kitchen to be like this shot where my character is leaving the house is going to be a complicated oneer where we're not going to cut and we're going to swing around the car and the lines have to be just right and the lighting has to be just right. I'm going to shoot with Josh Gad outside in Malibu or wherever that was and we're not going to lose light. Like the light is consistent and I'm just like that's why I think you. All all good directors, I think, need to be enthusiasts and need to be passionate. And I'm seeing that in your work. And I, I just want you to know that's not lost. A lot of people well, are noticing I, the difference. I, thank you. I'm very into, you know, I love Woody Allen. I was raised on Woody Allen. And, um, and what I loved about Woody Allen films is that he was the first filmmaker I knew because I was raised on him because my parents loved him, where the cinematography was epic and stunning. He always had the, with the top cinematographer at the time shooting them. And, but they were dialogue movies that took place on the streets of Manhattan and in apartments and, 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 and people just walking around talking. Yeah. But, 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 but the cinematography was on the level of, uh, of the most beautiful movies you've ever seen. I mean, if you look at the movie Manhattan, it's just, it's just the most stunning photography you've ever seen in a movie, but it's people sitting around talking. And yeah. I, I always aspired to, to do that. So we shoot them, uh, um, Garden State Super 35, but but um, but wish I was here was anamorphic and just with with the most beautiful lenses and and every shot is thought out and 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 my goal was that you could hit pause at any moment it would be a picture you could put on your wall. Yeah. Um, I also and, really and of course, I, I can't execute that, so I have someone like Larry who can help me. But um, but that's what I that's what I try and do. It's great. It's also not uh, too self indulgent. When I was watching, wish I was here the pace is pretty fast. Like if you take a moment, like you look at the pamphlets and it says this pamphlet could save your life and they're empty, which is just a great New Yorker cartoon. It's not just shot well. It's just like a great joke. It's a great moment. And it is Woody Allen now-ish now that you mention it in a great way. But you don't make a meal of it. The, the movie keeps plowing forward. And yeah. I was really wondering if that was a note someone gave you or if you, who's your filmmaking style somebody who didn't like it could call it indulgent, meaning it's, it's open-hearted. It's, it's sentimental. You know what I'm saying? I get called all those, all my, everything I've ever made gets called sentimental. And, and but if you that. watch the pace, like did someone make you pace it up or is that I'm your, sure. I'm sure there was a, th- everything I've made had a three hour cut first. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see the five cut back and forth to your face, to the pamphlet, to your face. Well, like, not, in that, not in that moment, but I, but I, but I, uh, I, uh, I, of all three, I've made three films and all three, I think the first assembly was three hours and then you go, okay, well, where the fuck is an hour 15 coming out of this? And that's, yeah. that's the shaping of the clay where you go, okay. And yeah. it hurts. It hurts. It hurts. Yeah. I had, I had a reveal at the end of Garden State that was really shocking and I had it in for a long time and Bill Lawrence who created Scrubs and who's one of my best friends and a mentor to me. He came in this very house and was, was cutting. The avid was set up in the, in the dining room and he came and he watched the movie and he goes, all right, 
you can't see this right now, but that scene will never be in your movie. <laughs> what was the scene? What was it? And I was like livid. I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Don't say that. You know, da, 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 da. and he, he was right. Um, um, in Garden State, um, at the very end, I written a scene and shot a scene where the father had heard the mother drowning. And it was a flashback at the very end would of the not movie. Lend a hand? What's that? But would not lend a hand? Yeah. So what happens is <laughs> Phil Collins. <laughs> in, in, what happens is he at the, at the very end of the movie, right before my character comes back and finds Natalie at baggage claim, you cut to a flashback. And in the flashback, you hear my father hear the mother flashing, uh, screaming and splashing around in the bathtub. Oh, no. And he races to the bathroom door to help instinctually and stops himself in the door frame and realizes that she really wants to die. She's not a happy person. She wants her life to be over. She wants to die. And he slowly backs away from the door frame of the bathroom and sits down on his bed and waits for the splashing to stop. And then he picks up the phone and calls 911. Whoa. And it was really powerful, if I do say so myself. And I think I remember Bill saying like, here's the thing, that's the most powerful scene in the movie, and it will never be in the movie. Because it totally cock-blocked the movie. It totally hijacked the love story, it hijacked the end of the movie. It left the audience with a, oh my God, pit in their stomach, as opposed to like, Yay, new love. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. I'm fascinated with those moments. Like uh, Up in the Air is one of those movies that I heard they really fought about the ending. And if you remember the ending, he goes to her house, he knocks on the door and she's married and has kids. And like, it's just not what you were hoping. So like, yeah. it seems like, I think people are like, that that movie could have benefited from somebody being like, I think you're cock blocking your own movie here. Yeah, I think I think that's you need those people. You need the non yes men in your life and women, yes men and women, to say like you can't see this, but yeah, yeah. that's fucking your shit up. And that's sometimes really they're wrong. Sometimes I, mean, I had a friend give me a note uh, recently, and I was like, I'm not doing that at all. But I'm. But you got to take it. <laughs> I'm gonna. You've probably maybe you've heard this, but Judd told me this, and I quote it constantly: "Is it's not the note, it's where the note is given." So they could be like, "You should cut that scene." It doesn't mean you need to cut the scene. It means there's something about right. where it is, the pacing of it, the music of it, the way you cut it. Something they might just say, "I don't like that scene," but really they're they're pointing to something that they can't even articulate. I just thought of something, the obvious, that didn't occur to me until you just said that, that you've had such an awesome experience in having Judd be your mentor, and you, you must have learned so much. Yeah, I really did. He's, he's truly incredible. And the th- Does he the still th- return your phone calls? Or Yeah, we talk. Actually, the, <laughs> the two people I talk to during the quarantine are Mike Birbiglia and Judd. I, I think we've sort of found this what a dream team. I know it is a great dream team. And one of the things that we talk about is why no one else answers our calls. Like people, someone, someone somewhere is not answering Judd's calls or Mike's calls or my calls, which is fine. Uh, but you talk to Judd on the phone? Yeah, I, I talk to Judd on the phone. I don't like to talk to anybody on the phone. Unless it's my parents, I have to FaceTime them and make sure they're okay. I hate talking on the phone as well. And that's why I'm glad we're doing the video because this makes us okay for me. Right. Uh, if we're, if we're, yeah, this funny thing about this quarantine if there's anything funny is that we're all getting used to um, this zoom thing. And, and I've had calls that are like 
regular conference calls. They're like, it's going to be on Zoom. I'm like, why? There's no need for it to be on Zoom. Why can't yeah. it be a good old-fashioned conference call? Because yeah. I'm used to being excited to look at a stranger. I know. It's completely true. My dad texted me maybe a week ago. Literally, he said, uh, this virus is called Corona, which is also the name of the beer. Maybe there's something there. He wrote that. <laughs> I had heard that people were not drinking Corona because there was a percentage of the population that thought there might be a corollary. I think there's going to be an uplift for the ironic purchases. You know what I mean? I've heard some people are having distanced parties where they serve Corona to be funny. So I think it's all all going to work out. Keep serving it at the the Mermaid uh, Oyster. I I shouldn't sell my Corona stock is what you're saying. That's what I'm saying. Absolutely not. I know you have to go in a little bit. We always talk about the meaning of life. I always think of Garden State where they're yelling into a ravine. Yeah. Also, you have Josh Gad saying, I'm getting in. Uh, what does he say? It's too crowded. He says, something's too crowded. I'm getting into blogging. Oh, so he says, um, 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 apps, apps are too crowded. I'm going to start blogging. You also have a great line where you say, uh, I don't know if you made it up because it just sounds like such wisdom. Uh, maybe it's the thing. Um, what do we do? He goes, move forward. It's the only direction God gave us. Yeah, I wrote so, that. I made that up. It's great. It's great. It sounds like real. It is real wisdom. Uh, with my those, I'm gonna, in that movie though is when the rabbi says, when I, my character says, what about my pursuit of, doesn't God care about my pursuit of happiness? And the old rabbi goes, no, Thomas Jefferson cared about your happiness. Yes. I want you to provide for your children. Yeah. I, uh, that scene was difficult for me. I love that line. But anytime people are using God uh, to guilt someone into doing something that's culturally valuable, I'm like, the God that I believe in is a, a lot more uh, liberated <laughs> and free and infinite. Uh, well, you were, and you were identifying with my character, but, yeah. but, but you and your, I'm sure, just from knowing your, your writing, that you can identify with people giving you religious guilt for not doing what you're supposed to be doing. Oh, yeah. God wants you to be straight. Yeah. God, or God wants you to stay in your abusive marriage. I mean, right. that that's still happening. It's, it's, it's a horrible misuse of it. So let's wash that away. I like the three things that I primed you with. And now I'll ask you, Zach, you're 45. Uh, where are we at just today? You don't even have to give me the whole picture. You're a man, reclaimed wood. You're working on a script. Your girlfriend's walking by. You're talking to me. How are you finding your connection to the infinite? What story do you tell? Do you feel at home here? Do you feel some sort of sense of a, of something going on? Just what is your spiritual take? Um, what if you just end the call? <laughs> I, I have to go. <laughs> I um, <laughs> I'm going to slip away. I, I have to go. I'm I'm due to double. Um, no, I, you know uh, the the cross was reclaimed wood. <laughs> you really like this reclaimed wood, bro? I can I can give you the guy. <laughs> Keep going. I'm so sorry. Um, I I definitely feel a. That's kind of what I wrote about and wish I was here. This connection to the infinite. I I don't I I don't like anything that was forced down my throat about Judaism, other than the connection and the family and the traditions and the humor. Um, I I didn't like the guilt I was meant to feel and often would think the God I believe in must be laughing at what you people are doing. Like he does not, if you want to have unleavened bread as a tradition, it's fine. But if you think God, if there is a God cares that you eat unleavened bread this week, uh, I just, I just couldn't get my ever get my head around that. I, I, I respect the tradition of it all, but thought 
that's not my spirituality. And so what I wrote about in which I was here was this connection to the infinite. That's what boggles my mind that we're on this tiny spinning rock in, in the middle of infinity. And, uh, mm. and, 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 and that is where I, I find some, some measure of awe, of course. And when I pray to things, I think I pray to that. I pray to, to the universe and to the moon. And, and I have a friend who's quite, quite ill with this COVID, um, in critical condition. One of my so best friends. And, and so of course you find yourself looking to, you know, when you're a kid, I think I go, I'm just going to cover my bases and pray to everybody. It was like, you just <laughs> bang out all the gods. Um, and, and now I just feel myself, uh, just, um, uh, instinctually asking the universe for him to survive. Mm. Yeah. I, I did the same thing. I haven't done a traditional dear Jesus in a while. And I was watching, people suffering, posting videos. And I was just like, I don't know what else to do. So I, I'm with you. Do you have a connection to, I mean, do, so I know that, you know, you, you just from watching your show, which I assume is somewhat autobiographical. Do, do you still, um, are you still religious yourself? Uh, well, I mean, everybody says it's not, not, not religious, but very, very, very spiritual, but I'm also, you know, but is it Jesus for you? I'm Christ leaning. That's sort of my homeboy. But I mean, like there's uh, there's a Hanuman on my desk over here, which is a Hindu thing. There's a Buddha in my kitchen. I'm sort of I'm enjoying the truth wherever it's hiding. That's another thing I never liked about organized religion. I'm sorry, I should say the organized religions that um, that say my God is right and your God is wrong. I've always been a supporter. Right. Of, like if something works for you, amen. As long as you're not hurting anybody, do it. But I, I was never of, of, I always was troubled by like, Oh, <laughs> you worship that God. No, no, no. That's not the God. Let me right. show you this God. <laughs> that's right. I mean, how can we, how can we ever know? Uh, <clears throat> I mean, I don't know. Well, I mean, everybody that listens to this podcast knows that you've sort of stumbled into my favorite topic, which is turning religion into certainty worship turning it into tribalism, turning yeah. it into an identity building thing, which is all an ego trip. It actually even sort of goes back into the idea of unleavened bread, which again, as a tradition, I'm all for. But the idea that God is offended by leavened bread or offended that I said come gutters is yeah. actually not a free idea of God. A, a truly free God wouldn't be offended. You understand, like we're making a God that's like us instead of the other way around. Right. And the God that I see in your God, which is infinity, is everything belongs. I see something that is pulsing and living, including and housing and redeeming and participating with it all. So when you say God is laughing at how silly we're being, he is because we're laughing. Like this is this is right. the great play. This is, I just this can't is imagine like these people who were like, oh my God, you had, um, you know, when I was a kid, we were kosher. And, you know, we were not allowed to have, we had to wait, if we had meat, we had to wait an hour before we had dairy. So you, if you're, you're a kid, all you want for dessert is ice cream, right? That's your dream. So we'd have a meat meal and then we had to sit and wait for an hour before we could have our, 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 our dessert. And I just remember thinking, even as a child, like, can you imagine God, if, if let's say there really is a God and, and he's a, uh, uh, watching us and he's, and he's busy with so much in the world and he's racing around dealing with so much, <laughs> so many things in the universe. And he's like, whoa, 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 Braff, it's been 45. 
Yeah. You got another 15 before the uh, hagen Dude, You're pulling a page right out of my book. <laughs> there, were the, there were the people in college that would have anal sex, but not vaginal sex. And my big joke was like, you think he's up there going like, I said no sex. Oh, it's in the butt. Like that is... <laughs> That is one of my old stand-up bits because I couldn't reconcile. Now, people who listen to this podcast have heard it before, but I'm saying it to you, Zach. One of the things I love about Judaism is that the God, as presented to Moses, says his name is I am. I'm almost done. I know everybody's heard this before. But when Moses says, what's your name? He says, I am that I am, right? I I always thought that God was being like a mobster. He was kind of ducking the question, like, don't worry about it. I'm just, uh, I'm the big cheese, all right? I am that I am. Get the fuck out of my face. Now I see that Yahweh is the first symbol, and that doesn't demean it. That actually lets it be what it is. It's the first metaphor to house the idea of emness, of infinity, of being, of not just infinity, an infinity that wanted to manifest. That is the God that we're talking about, and it's right there in the oldest Jewish scriptures that we have. So it's not as new agey as it sounds to be like, my God is this, do you ever find it funny that God makes a lot of mistakes in, 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 in creating the universe, which I always thought was a, which there should be a rewrite on that because if you, I was reading some old Testament and he's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, God, well, God changes his mind and he changes stuff. his mind a yeah. lot. Yeah. And then well, he, the thing he, that he gets pissed, he gets pissed a lot. The thing that I found, well, we do, we do this through every time period, right? We make the only chance we have, Carl Jung said, you can't fall in love with an energy. Something has to have a face for you to really commune with it. So throughout time, and we're still doing it to this day, we make God in our image. You know what I mean? God made us in his image and we return the favor, right? We then make a God that's in our image. And that's the best we can sort of do. That's what we're dealing with. So you see a God that is like us. So as you watch the arc of Yahweh through the Old Testament and through the Bible, uh, it evolves just like we evolve. And then you get Elon Musk saying we live in a simulation because he's a programmer and he sees God as a programmer. You know what I'm saying? It's the same mm-hmm. thing. Nothing has changed. We're trying to understand the fundamental spark of all isness. And the only way we can get close is by telling stories. When you consider infinity, what game isn't being played, as Michael Gunger says? What game isn't being played if there's no limit? And that's what your character says in the movie. I yeah. look at infinity. I can't stop tripping out on how it never ends. And that be God. That's what he says. There's your, there's your wonder and there's your awe and there's your majesty. I don't give a fuck what you call it or who you're praying to. Uh, Meister Eckhart said, if the only prayer you say in your, in your life is thank you, that will be enough. Who and said that? Meister Eckhart. The idea that you say thank you or wow, this is Anne Lamott now, help, thanks, wow, those are the three prayers you need. Mm-hmm. And I was like, who? Oh, thanks, wow. The, the ego cares what pew you sit in. And Richard Rohr, man, you got me on a tear, but he says the best place to hide from God is religion. The best place to hide from God is religion. Wow. Because as long as you go to church, no more questions. I'm a decent guy. I go to I'm church. Here. I'm here. Covered. Lay on your back in a field, maybe take some mushrooms. I don't know. Look up at infinity and deal with that, man. That's church. Right. Amen. Right? I want to right? go to your church. I want to go to your church. We're in it, baby. We have a sauna to go to when you're in the <laughs> room. Well, there's a lot of weird naked sauna stuff. It when sounds pan- good. When this pandemic is over, can I come and sit in your sauna? And <laughs> I want to wear those sneakers right there I see. And 
my baby has been putting those sneakers on and walking around. It's the cutest thing you've ever well, seen. Well, they're mine once this pandemic's over. I want to come over. It might be a little tight for two men in there. I don't know. I feel like you could make, I'm not going to say reclaimed wood, Zach, but I feel like there's room in that house for a sauna. I bet you could make yeah, that. Yeah, there probably is. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, uh, that's our God stuff. I think, we, I think we did a good job. Yeah, we, we got it up. We usually ask this. This is ending up being a, a quick episode because you're so good. There's two things I want to ask you about. You could use the frame of the quarantine, but how are you dealing with anxiety? I mentioned that you were someone who sort of broke through the the artificial ceiling and helped it become part of the conversation. I'm grateful to you for that. Mm. I'm noticing during this pandemic that I still have a lot of like weird low level dread and self doubt that Mm. I usually mask by living life Mm. and it's manageable, but I'm wondering what's your experience like as someone who's dealt with that? Um, I um, exercise that um, endorphins help my sanity and yeah. also um, meditate. Um, when I meditate every morning for 20 minutes, I notice noticeably feel better throughout the day. Yeah. So, what flavor? Um, I do. I use the Headspace app. Not to give them a plug, but I well, guess I can give them a plug because it's very helpful to me. Yeah. Um, there's a zillion apps, but that one's just the one I've uh, gravitated towards. And... Um, I just think sitting, if, if I, I can give myself a recipe, I had a friend recently who had a breakdown and I, and I just gave him like this recipe of everything that's ever worked for me when I, when I'm feeling way too anxious. And if you, if you do all of those things, I feel like you can really um, bring it down. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me two of those big things are exercising and whether it's cardio, of course, is, a, is to get the endorphins going and, and meditating every, every morning. Yeah. You're in such good company. I, I've had people much older than you that deal with depression and they're like, that's the only thing it, that you can't skip is go on that hike or, or get on the treadmill or whatever it is. Um, I have a therapist who said, uh, uh, the gym, the regular, you going to the gym will put me out of business. <laughs> or maybe, maybe he said it like that, or he said the gym will put me out of business. Meaning just like, he's like, I can only do so much. What you need to do is do it for yourself, which is like, stop drinking so much, stop smoking so much, stop eating fucking crap, work out, meditate. Like it's like a recipe, you know? Yeah. Is that your vice? Did it was, was booze or or weed kind of a crutch for you? Definitely. Um, not so weed just for fun, but I definitely have gone through periods in my life where I was drinking too much. Um, and, and then just, feeling the depression from that and you know it's like you know makes sense when you stop because you're just chugging depression juice (laughs) that was one of the weird i stopped drinking a couple years ago almost three years ago now and i realized that like i liked that there was something really toxically masculine about getting drunk feeling sad feeling angry and it's like I wanted to do that. Like my shadow wanted to do it. Some part of my psyche wanted to slip into the angry dad, become the monster. It was all internal. Mm. But like I wanted to exercise it from the outside. I think there's a reason uh, smarter people could tell you why it's called spirits, but it would almost like kind of possess you with those negative things. But don't I, you think that you're, uh, have, hasn't your serotonin level gone up since you stopped drinking? Without a doubt. It's, yeah. it's the greatest thing in the world. And I now... Think I think if you're really out there and you're suffering, um, 
obviously go see a therapist and maybe get on meds um, if you're in a bad place. But but one of the first things you can do is stop drinking and stop doing any drugs and exercise. I mean, that's that's something you can yeah you can do because for me it was like I, I would. I would say to my shrink at the time, I, I drink a little now, but not like I was. And I say, uh, I would say like, oh my God, I didn't even drink. I haven't had booze in like two weeks. I feel amazing. He's like, yeah, because it's a depressant. And you're just, yeah. you're trying to combat depression by pounding depression juice. Right, right. And I think diet has a lot to do with it too. I, I was watching a, I think it's called Food Matters. And it really changed the way that I looked at food. And, and one of the doctors in there was like, of course you're depressed your body isn't getting what it needs. Like to like taking being happy sort of takes energy is something that I've noticed. I was raw vegan for a while and I was never so happy. I was just constantly, I was high on wheatgrass. That's why so many of the things at the beginning of this podcast that I promote, I always say they're mood elevated. Oh, vegan. How the hell, did, how long did you keep that up? I mean, I, that would be amazing. I, I totally believe you'd feel better, but that's like, that's like a full-time job. It, it's tricky. I was doing a, a TV show at, at the time. I was doing my talk show and if somebody, uh, my wonderful assistant, Paige Hines, who's been my assistant for a decade now, if she's going to Sun Cafe and getting my lunch, it, it was a lot easier than right. say now, I, I'm not uh, a raw vegan at all. There was a place, I think it's closed in Manhattan called Pure Food and Wine on yeah. Park Avenue South, right? Yeah, yeah, it was great. And was it Park Avenue South or was it, um, it may have been uh, Gramercy or something over there. Yeah. And... Um, it was amazing. And I, I, I ate there a few times and I was like, well, yeah, if someone at this amazing restaurant makes your raw food, then they can make it taste like anything. Yeah. But when you were on the scrub dubs I mean, like you could have had anybody bringing you anything like that was your time to be raw vegan. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I guess yeah. I, you know, if I get one of those movies like your neighbor uh, and I need to just get ripped, maybe I'll do that. Yeah, there you go. Although I was just talking to Kumail about it. I think all he eats is chicken and he's one. Of, he, he's so sweet and he's so smart. He's like, it's morally reprehensible. He's like, it's just not right. Like he just doesn't believe that eating meat is right. But he's like, it's all I do. But it's one of those. It it almost feels like a I'm trying to stop that. I'm trying to. We're, I'm trying. We're trying pescatarian uh, because uh, that's a that's a good half measure for me. Yeah. No. I I I eat fish. There's no word for what I am. It's basically a weird guy who's taking every meal <laughs> for what it is. Yeah. I, say, I, I, I definitely notice uh, feeling better when I'm not eating meat. Yeah. But I never noticed the, the correlation between giving your cells what they need and your mental well-being, and, and that's, that's one of the reasons why I'm eating cachava. That's one of the things or, or making all these weird smoothies. It's not just to like fill up on the go. It's because my brain goes like, all right, We've taken care of all the basics. Now we can actually give them some serotonin. Right. Which is really helpful for me. Right. The the other um, thing I was going to ask about was the hardest time you've laughed. (laughs) Could you think of one? The hardest time I laughed. Um, The first thing that comes to my brain is a very silly moment on Scrubs with Neil Flynn. Do you know Neil Flynn, by the way? I don't think so. Neil Flynn is a... uh, uh, was played the janitor on Scrubs, and he oh, he's great. Guy. Yeah, very very funny. This is what my brain vomited up first. Was he would always he would we all riffed and improv, but he was the best. And he, um, we were doing this scene where his wife, he was my nemesis on the show, and his wife had um, his wife had made me Scrubs short shorts <laughs> to wear to the hospital. 
and uh, and I and I we were just doing the scene, riffing back and forth, and I had to get through it. And I said, "Look, I'm a doctor. I I can't wear short shorts." It's a <laughs> And he said, "Well, you know, my the good Lord didn't didn't uh, grace my wife with all ten fingers. Um, she only has pointer and and thumb pinky, and uh, and so it was extra hard for her to craft." <laughs> <laughs> he makes the only situation where you have to wear them, and he riffed it. I think he wow. ripped it, and it was like basically like you are insulting a, a, a handicapped woman's uh, gift to you if you do not rock these scrub short shorts in the hospital. Oh my god! And I just remember, just uh, of all the of the nine years I did on Scrubs, that was one of the hardest. I laughed just trying to get through that with him. That's amazing. Um, that's, that's amazing. That's, that's the first thing that came to my brain. I love it. You know what was my Scrubs moment? It's not a funny moment, although it was wonderful. It was actually one of the scripts that I spec'd when I was becoming a writer. Oh, um, I'd like to read your uh, your scrub spec. I don't think I got through it. Isn't that fun? You could read it now for, for all the many years that you I wrote been, a, like, scrub, a scrub spec. Early on, I had the balls to give it to Bill Lawrence, and, and uh, it literally, someone, this isn't an exaggeration you would see in a movie, someone literally came in from the parking lot, and it had a tire track across it. And they said, Zach, this has your name on it. Is this your, your oh, script? Oh, my God. It ended up not only in the parking lot, but under a car. <laughs> he, said, he said later, even though he laughs at this and uh, uh, now too, but he said later he obviously put it on the roof of his car when he was getting in and then forgot about it and then drove Oh, my God. <laughs> he literally ran there was, it over. There was literally a tire track across the title page. That's like that DHL SNL sketch where they, if a package is late, you can make it look like it was delayed and they'll weather the box for you <laughs> and they run it over with a fake tire. That's, That's what happened to your script. Yeah. But we talk about your scrub specs. Oh, my scrub moment. It, it's actually heartfelt. Is I know the show was heartfelt. Um, there was the moment where you're guessing how everyone's going to die. Do you remember this? You did so many episodes and you're yeah. looking at your own reflection and you, then you have to guess how you're going to, how JD is going to die. Mm. And you went, I don't know maybe anxiety and i was like me like i just never there had never been a character we're back to bread buttering but i i just saw myself in the show i was like that's my concern is that i'm going to worry myself to death yeah well well we were (laughs) we've worked on it meditation and exercise and, and and diet and sweet lady Val and my baby and and yeah. a, a connection to living spirit. That's my that's my thing. Um, because we have fifteen more minutes ish, ten minutes maybe. I just don't want to waste this wonderful time. I'm enjoying talking to you so much. So let's do a couple more greatest lessons and we'll get out of here. How's that sound? Sure, good. Yeah, whatever you want. What? Well, because we're on the topic. What's a great? What's one of the greatest lessons you've learned about mental health or just happiness? Um, one of the greatest lessons I've learned is that so much of what we are anxious and stressed about, we completely made up. Mm. Um, you know, something happened, a set of facts, and then we spun a giant yarn around it and then accepted that giant yarn as the truth. And that ball of mayhem is what's causing our anxiety. 
And, and, and if you can find a way to cut out all and really be honest with yourself and just cut through and go, oh, no, I made that up. No, that was my interpretation. And all of a sudden, if you keep doing that, hacking away, hacking away, you get to like the tiny little seed of the, of the fact that what happened. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that thing isn't so upsetting because that thing could have an infinite number of interpretations. That's right. It's like the, the, the easiest example is that you see a friend across the street and you call out and, hey, Timmy, how you doing? And they don't respond. Um, and then you go home and go, fuck it, what did I do to Timmy? And you start thinking about it. It must be because of that. Oh, but because of that. Oh, my God. Now I'm stressed. Oh, my God. Da, da, da. And you spin this whole yarn. And then later he calls you and says, hey, man, I, uh, someone told me you saw me. I didn't hear you. I didn't hear you. Whatever. I'm just making right. this right. story. But that times a thousand is how a lot of us live our days. And uh, and so that's a powerful thing I've learned is, is cutting out all of uh, working to cut back on all of the stories we've made up from the set of facts. Um, and getting back to what actually occurred. Yeah, that's very, very timely. You see a lot of balls of yarn meeting together and making bigger balls of yarn together. So it's not facts, it's speculation and it's fear that we're fueled by facts. I understand we're living in a scary time, but they can get carried away and they can meet together and make even bigger ones. And my great teacher, Eckhart Tolle, is like, just focus on, he's like, fear is a story of something that might happen. Just like, what's happening? right now let's take precautions but don't believe your own hype don't believe your own stories because it like a lot of things can be waving at your friend timmy and you and you just don't know so you have to surrender to that that's brilliant i love that another thing that i think about (laughs) is the um is the phrase and i sort of meditated on when i'm having a problem i'll sort of meditate on this phrase which is what are you pretending not to know hmm That is to say, if I am 100% honest with myself, like the most honest I've ever been with myself on this topic, what am I pretending not to know about it? And really interesting things gurgle up. Wow, that's great. That's great. I feel like for men, for me, uh, I'll just speak for myself as a man, but I feel like it's whatever. I feel like it's often I'm sad or I'm angry. You know what I mean? Like a lot of like my interpretations will be trying to avoid some negative feeling that I don't like to think of myself as having. And men often are taught that it's not okay to be sad. It might be something more specific. It might be very specific to the situation. Whereas I'm sad or I'm angry might be um, sort of the macro feeling, but you can get into the micro by going, oh my God. I'm like, str- you know, might take a while. It's like, a, it's like, it might be a couple. Have you ever had a colonic? Yeah. <laughs> so if you've never had a colonic, what happens? Yeah, bro. <laughs> they fill you up with water through your back door and then like, you know, some stuff comes out and then they do it again and then like nothing comes out and you're like, oh, is that it? And then all of a sudden they do it again and they're like, <laughs> this stuff that you, that you ate when you were in fourth grade comes out. And I think of this little meditation exercise like that where you can go, you just ruminate it, ruminate it, nothing, nothing. Oh, I'm just, yeah, and then all of a sudden you have an epiphany where you go, oh, what am I pretending not to know? I, I'm, I'm, you know, it could be, I mean, I can't think of a, just a universal example, but it could be something like, oh, this is causing me stress because I da 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 Like it just occurs to you, you know? So my yeah. point is it doesn't necessarily always come up right away. You might just kind of like, sometimes I'll just like use it on a topic as I'm falling asleep. Like, why is that situation 
causing me so much anxiety. What am I pretending not to know about what that, what are those, what's going on over there? Yeah, I love that. The last time I had a colonic was one of those ones where they leave you alone. I don't know if you've had had that I never had one of those. There's kinds where the person is in the room and then there's a kind where they get you set up and then you get to do it on your own. And that's pretty nice because you can just do it on your own. Oh, I don't want that. I like the woman who cheers. I I, I only went... I only went twice and I really want to find a place to do it again because it's been years. I remember really liking it. And this woman would like cheer. She was so proud of you for, yeah. for releasing. She'd go, you're yeah. releasing. Yeah. They're, they're special people. I, it sounds like I'm making a joke. I really mean it. They've gotten over the hurdle. They, they've taken everybody poops into their heart and they go yeah. and they try and they, they like it. They like they it. Do. But I couldn't <laughs> get over that. So this woman, this woman came into the room and so they hook you up through the back door, they said, and you feel, you feel it filling up your intestine. Yeah. yeah. And she says, and when you feel you've got to go, you let me know. That's right. She's, so she goes, when you feel like it's, it's in there uh, to the point where you can no longer take it, push. But she was standing there and I was like, yeah, I can take more. I can take, because I didn't want to do it with her in the room. So I probably let it fill me up for like three minutes and she leaves. And then after that, when I was alone, I couldn't take it for more than 30 seconds. There she is. She's calling now. I'm sorry. I just couldn't share with you in the room. <laughs> I love that. What's um, a- yeah, sorry again. Oh, no, please. More I've revealed too much. I've said too much. We, we both have. And that's, that's what we'll live with. You know what I almost tweeted today? I was like, uh, one of the upsides of not seeing anybody is there's no way to wonder what people are thinking about you. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, you're not interacting with anybody. So you can't be like, what did Timmy think? Yeah, don't you think, though, that people think about you way less than you think they do? Totally. Welcome to the wisdom of the second half of life. No one gives a shit. <laughs> like, no one nobody, nobody is thinking about I how I... Say, I once heard someone say, look, when you die, people are going to be really, really, really sad. And they're going to bawl. And they're going to be at your funeral. And they're going to be holding each other. And they're going to be quivering. And they're going to be yelling why to the universe. And then they're going to go eat lunch. <laughs> well, let me get rid of this phone call and then they're gonna go I'm eat gonna lunch. Back. oh my god um, and then they're gonna go eat lunch and i always thought that was so funny because every time i've been to a funeral no matter how close the person was to you that's what happens you 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 are so distraught and then you go have locks on a bagel yeah I love that. That's wonderful perspective. I mentioned it on the last episode, but I, I was talking to Conan about how we watch um, time, time. Uh, it's not time lapse, but it's footage where they just put a camera in New York City in like 1908 and you just watch it. It's very meditative. And you go, everyone in this needs to get lunch. Everyone in this is worried about their relationships. They're worried about their job. They're worried about when they're going to die. And there's a beautiful release going they're all gone, not in the sad way, in the like, don't you see that's us too? Like your shit is only as real as you make it. And if you can find some freedom that you are the guy in the bowler hat, it's not a bowler hat, it's an iPhone, but you are the guy walking by the frame that in 200 years they're going to go, oh, that, I think that Zach Braff from that show Scrubs, uh, he's been gone for two, dec- two centuries. You know what I, I, mean? wrote a, I wrote a play that I'd love for you to read. Um, called all new people and that's uh, what ray romano said to me what 100 years all new people 
Yeah, that I, I I didn't write that sentence, but I took that from I took that phrase, whoever said it first, and and called the play "All New People." And in the play, they reference the phrase, which is "In a hundred years, there'll be all new people." Yes, that is equanimity in in a pill form. That's yeah. beautiful. You've given us a yeah. lot of gifts. All today. new people. I really appreciate. And if you're Ray Romano, it's all new people. You all actually people. you remind me of Ray sometimes. I got that all the time, both in my voice. Because uh, we sound alike, I think, and then of course, when my career started, everyone said uh, that we looked alike. And and, uh, and 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 I met him on a red carpet once, and he said, "Oh, it's like it's like looking in the mirror." <laughs> <laughs> I thought he would say. I bet he would say something like, "You're what my wife pictures while I'm having sex with her. <laughs> like she fixes me, and I look more like you." Like That's with pretty the good. Ch- That's a pretty the, good Ray Romano impression. With the chisels and the, the abs. <laughs> we had a lot of fun. You yep. have to go. I told you it would be done at this Listen, time. It's I- like what they say on Howard Stern. We've said it all. <laughs> um. um can we do the movie for three million? It's definitely my takeaway. I love yeah, that I, so much. Just give us a second. You know what? I was, people- I was in. A, I was in. A, um, I worked with Woody Allen uh, uh, twice now, and uh, I did a, his Broadway musical. They, they turned Bullets Over Broadway into a musical, and I was the John Cusack role. And every night he would come to previews and rewrite jokes that didn't work the night before. So I had a really interesting, unique perspective to watch Woody Allen writing jokes uh, wow. right in front of me and and see give me jokes and then sometimes I wouldn't um I'd forget to you know that night I would uh, and when they got to that scene in the play I'd, I'd fuck up and I wouldn't do the joke right and I'd skip the section or something and I remember saying to him um Woody I'm, I'm really sorry I got to that section with the new joke and I I, I skipped it and he goes yep probably get a, a bigger laugh if you actually say it on stage <laughs> and then he just picks up a clarinet and he's on a moving sidewalk and he slides away from you oh my god woodrow was that you uh i love this i love talking with you please thank do- you can we let's be real friends i would love to i, I, I not just podcast friends it makes me sad like one of the things about this podcast is a lot of times at the end we're like, let's be friends. And we don't because in the pre quarantine, you just take for granted like, Oh, I'll see them. And now I'm like going to savor like any, like when I can see you in person. I've hung out with Berbiglia. Maybe we can all hang out together. I was hanging out with Zach Brown. (laughs) (laughs) I loved, I saw, um, I saw the first preview, I think of the new one on Broadway at the cherry lane. No, no. uh, On Broadway. Was oh, I'm the, sorry. Uptown. I thought the previews were at Cherry Lane and then it went to Broadway. You yeah, saw I the saw first the first Broadway uh, before. I see. I see. And uh, I, I, I was just, I thought it was fucking incredible. It made me so, uh, it made me inspired to, to one day uh, try and do a one-man show, even though I don't, I, I don't know that I have the fortitude to work that hard at it. But man, is he good at that. He's very, very good. And for somebody that kills darlings, I saw it at Cherry Lane, and then I saw it again on Broadway, and it's like, or I saw the special, and it's like, wow. I'd call him and be like, you cut this part. The guy is shredding killer stuff all the time. He makes he makes me sort of feel like a fraud in the good way. You always want to play tennis with somebody that's better than you. Yeah. That's that's my Birbiglia, you know. So good. I gave him one tiny note. And, Not funnier, uh, but just better. <laughs> I gave him one tiny note, and I was hoping that when I saw the special on HBO, that he would have adopted my genius tiny note. 
Nope. That's hilarious. For Biglia, it could have been better. I'm just kidding. Uh, I think I think he's uh, ducked a few notes of mine. I would love to read your play. There's nothing much going on. You have my yes. email. Uh, listen, um, read my play. It's available. Um, listen to my podcast. I'm uh, you're not yeah, going to believe this, but I'm making a podcast with uh, no. I, my best friend Donald Faison and I are just sitting around and watching old Scrubs episodes, and it's kind of like DVD commentary where we sit and watch the. Show show and tell old funny stories about it and uh it's called uh fake doctors real friends that's a great idea good for yeah. you i saw what was the name of the mean doctor forgive me for being johnny so- c mcginley was played uh, his character was dr cox i saw johnny c mcginley uh, in glengarry glen ross with oh pacino, yeah with pacino yeah and i i was on a plane with him and i went up to him and i was like i saw you in that i think because i know you love pacino he goes uh, if Al touched his hair like this, which is funny because that's in Glengarry Glen Ross. There's a part where he's like, yeah. it means Kenilworth. If I touch yeah. my hair. Yeah. Uh, but he goes like, there was a certain thing he would do with his hair and we knew he was going to jump three pages. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah, that's a scary, Bobby Cannavale was, was Ricky Roma in that production. And oh, he was great. That's nothing. There's nothing. The only thing scarier than being on stage is knowing that one of your team members doesn't know their lines. That is fucking terrifying. So, oh, I was going to so say that, maybe. That was advanced, that was advanced uh, Broadway acting for those guys if Al was jumping around. And it pl- I thought you were going to say playing Ricky Roma with Ricky Roma on stage. I put an honor that Bobby Cannavale, who's wonderful, would be chosen to play Ricky Roma with the Ricky Roma. He did a great job. But as I'm obsessed with the movie, he's doing the great monologue. And he found, like, I couldn't do that monologue without doing it the way Pacino does it, without mm-hmm. saying it the way he says it. Yeah. And he found a whole new way to do it. Yeah. It really, really great. I would have just done my Pacino impression. Of course. Do you have one? Do you want to do Dueling Pacino? No, but I have, a, I, have a, I have a story with him. I went. I was at a dinner party with him. Um, like twelve. I, I my friend said you want to go to dinner with Pacino, and I said, Oh my god, are you kidding me? Let me get dressed. And we got there, and it was like ten people, and I was like, Oh, this isn't really what I pictured. And you know, and then at a certain point in dinner, people got up to smoke and 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 left the table, and it was literally me and Al Pacino. And <laughs> and I'm sitting there, and I'm talking to him like I, I, I'm trying to be cool, but. Did he go, hey, JD? <laughs> hey, Scrubs, get over here. Get over here, Scrubs. I got a mole I want you to look at. This is a true story. <laughs> this is not a lie. He reached into his pocket. He looked around. Everyone was gone. He reaches into his coat pocket, pulls out a small little action figure, about this, big, about three inches big. And he goes, say hello to my little friend. <laughs> he did the voice. <laughs> <laughs> and then just as everyone was returning to the table and my jaws dropped he puts it back in his pocket like nothing ever happened wow thank you al i forget who told me this but because you're in manhattan maybe you'll enjoy it somebody on this podcast told me a story that they walked past pacino and the city was busy it was a summer day and they just as he's walking by he heard al say to his friend he goes city's hopping <laughs> The city is hopping. Yeah. I was like, that is the perfect thing to overhear Al Pacino say. Yeah. Well, this has been nice. We've said it all. And uh, all. I think we have a chance of being real, real non-pandemic friends. Let's do it. I want to do it. I was so touched that we got in touch over Twitter, touch, touched. And uh, I think I made it clear I'm a big fan. Please stay healthy. Stay safe. Would you tell yeah. everybody they're going to be okay? They, people like it. You're going to be okay. Oh, you uh, sang it. Yeah, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay.
Okay. And guess what? In a hundred years, there'll be all new people. That's right, baby. All right. That's right. When you say keep it crispy, it's how we end. That's how the guest says keep it crispy. Keep it. I feel like you're pranking me, but okay. Keep it crispy. <laughs> <laughs> Would you bye. say it? And bye bye, buddy. Bye. Are we good, uh, Tony? Yep, we are good. All right. All right. I was going to ask him to say it as Woody Allen. <laughs> no, he was, he uh, cut you off quickly there. But here here we are. <laughs> you can include this in the podcast. I was going to ask him to say it as Woody Allen. <laughs> here we are. Um, uh, um, keep it crispy. By the way, scandal noted. We'll talk later. Bye, guys. <laughs> My ice game make you players wanna get me.